Thank you, Kendi. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric Henderson. I'm the lead pastor here at Bethany Green Lake, and I'm so glad you've uh, chosen to join us today. Uh, I get a little jealous that y'all get to sit because you do this once and I do this four times. So I'm going to sit today, but also I'm going to play this later. And it just seemed a whole lot easier. So in case you're like, where's the pulpit? Why is he not standing? I'm so confused. That's why. Uh, I'm so glad you've chosen to join us today, uh, either in person or online. Uh, these are challenging times that we continue uh, to just walk through together. And so it's just good to be uh, in the same space together, listening for God's voice Uh, So join me in prayer as we open up our scriptures together. Uh, God, we just uh, confess, just declare right out of the gate, we need you. Uh, Lord, we're uh, kind of bewildered, confused, a little frustrated, just tired of uh, kind of our our lives being uh, disrupted in so many ways. And yet uh, here we sit in in the peace and calm of of this place and wherever we are online, um, just needing to hear from you. Uh, so God, we need, uh, we want some answers, but Lord, we need uh, comfort and perspective. Uh, God, we need a correction and teaching and healing. And so Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come uh, work your ministry among us uh, as we uh, consider your word together. Uh, Lord, we love you. In your name, amen. Well, by way of introduction, we're in the third week of a teaching series on the book of Job, which we've never done before in kind of the modern era as a church. So we were excited as a staff team to do this. And then we started studying it and we were like, oh boy, Uh, we had Dr. Koenig come and and help give us some perspective as we prepared as a team. Um, But part of why we named this series Embracing Mystery, the story of Job, uh, is because the book can often leave us with more Uh, questions than answers. Uh, But it seems to me, and it seems to me, that the answers to our questions aren't always as important as the connection to who it is that we're asking the questions uh, to. I'll tell you what I mean. My daughter is 10, uh, and she's very inquisitive, as most uh, 10-year-olds are. She'll often pepper my wife and I with, with question after question about really anything uh, and everything. And as a dad, you would think, uh, for here's an example, that I would be excited to, to drop some knowledge at, about the NFL's playoff structure. As two weeks ago, this, a line of questions came up about this because we were watching the Chargers and the Raiders game. And I told my daughter, if this game ends in a tie, they both would make the playoffs. And the Steelers would not make the playoffs which is awesome because every year in Seattle when the Steelers uh, fail to, when they lose at some point, as they always do, uh, except for the one time they beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl, uh, we celebrate Steelers Elimination Day. And so we were pretty excited, and it almost happened. The game was in overtime, and there's some controversy. Uh, The Raiders were about to let it end in a tie, and then the Chargers called a timeout. And kind of changed their mind, decided to kick a field goal. And so the Chargers, uh, the Raiders went to the playoffs, the Chargers did not. So there's all these questions about this. Uh, But in the middle of it, I wasn't super excited to answer all these questions. I just wanted to watch this game. She'll have other questions at times, like a favorite of of hers and my son is, what would happen if I accidentally took a sip of your beer? Which I think is real funny. These questions often come where, when we're in the middle of responding to a, to a work text 
or uh, we're trying to make dinner, or it's kind of at the end of the day, and we're just ready to finally uh, relax. In fact, sometimes our kids take the hint that we don't want to be asked these questions, and so they'll turn and they'll ask Alexa their questions. Maybe you have an Alexa in your house, and I can often be heard uh, just saying like, Alexa, don't listen to the kids, Uh, and there's probably Amazon people in here. Alexa always says, I don't know that one. Uh, or I'm sorry, I can't help you. It would be great if you could have an answer that says like, okay, Eric, Lord of this house, I will not listen to your kids. <laughs> so I was studying the book of Job this week, and it hit me like a ton of bricks that often my daughter isn't so much interested in the answer to the question as she is in connecting with mom or dad. After all these questions come after a day apart at work or school, um, or when we've had a day of chores and errands where we're just not all together and we're finally in the same space and there's this longing for connection. Kids are thirsty for knowledge, as we all are, uh, but more often they're thirsty for relationship and connection and intimacy. And Lane, if you're listening, I can't wait to answer all your questions about this. But the book of Job invites us to embrace mystery because life isn't always found in the answer to our questions, but in the experience of the questioning itself and our connection to who our questions are directed to. Consider Job, even among all the losses that he endured, perhaps the greatest loss would have been his trust in God. And maybe that's you today. Maybe it feels like you're facing that. If you missed the first two weeks or aren't familiar with the story of Job, I'll quickly catch you up to speed. Uh, Our story takes place on what some have called an an upper stage and a lower stage. In the interest of time, I'll I'll skip over uh, some nuances and caveats and some of the points of of kind of uh, fracturing in the theological community. So if you're a Bible scholar, I see a few of you here. Just we're proud of you and just I'm going to blow right past some of this. So here's what happens. Satan, you're already upset, uh, twice crashes God's board meeting, and he essentially attacks God's character with the charge that God is this Machiavellian, you know, the ends justify the means, control freak, puppeteer, and people worship God because God gives them stuff and God protects them. And God knows this isn't true. Rather, God produces free lovers and essentially says, challenge accepted. Now, all this takes place on the upper stage, in the spiritual realm, if you will. Join me on the lower stage, where there's a righteous man named Job, who Scripture says feared God and shunned evil. And God allows Satan to afflict Job. His cattle and livestock and servants and children and home, gone, dead or destroyed. And then Job's body was covered in sores from the top of his head to the tip of his toes, And the word says, this is how Job responds. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, part of what the author of Job wants us to know is how much we don't know. Being on the lower stage, Job has no idea of this challenge in the heavenly realm. He has no idea of this conflict between Satan's theology. Again, that God is a Machiavellian control freak, this puppeteer, and people worship God because God gives them stuff and protects them. And then God's theology, 
that God is good and God produces free lovers who choose to worship God because God is God. And this is important for us because both Job and Job's friends share much of Satan's theology. It's challenging to read the book because at times we're like, wait, is, my, is this good or is this bad? Is it all wrong? No, it's full of, of half-truths. And it's far more interested in a reason for suffering and how to prevent it next time in a why rather than a who. So as we consider our text for today and really just scratch the surface of Job and his friends search for answers, we want to ask the question, what might my suffering teach me about God and about myself? Whose suffering might I need to enter? Might we need to enter in this moment? And the point of our teaching today comes from uh, Eugene Peterson when he says this, when people go through suffering, their lives are often transformed, deepened, marked with beauty and holiness in remarkable ways that could never have been anticipated before the suffering. So instead of continuing to focus on preventing suffering, which we simply won't be very successful at anyway, perhaps should we, be, we should begin entering the suffering, participating insofar as we are able, entering the mystery and looking around for God. So in the next few minutes, with that idea of entering the mystery and looking around for God, we're going to consider three things together. First, that why isn't the answer, who it is that we need, and how we get there. So to set up our first point here, let's watch this clip. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me, and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head, and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most, is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop would... trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. Yeah, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just, sometimes it's like, there's this achy, I don't know what it is, and I'm not sleeping very well at all, and all my sweaters are snagged, I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just don't. <laughs> We've all been in that type of situation. Uh, we're all well versed in these cause and effect scenarios. I, for one, love to provide a, a quick fix. In fact, I'll often ask my wife at the beginning of a story she's telling me, like, am I just listening to listen or would you like advice? That's a critical a distinction for me. Maybe it is for you. Uh, but in Job's case, there, there was no nail. This was not a, a cause and effect scenario of his own doing. Job was, uh, in, in some ways, an innocent sufferer, right? Like, we're all aware of times when there's just things that happen to people that are natural consequences, and we kind of love to say, well, that's because of X. But this is not that scenario. Why wasn't the answer? 
But as we'll see after this strong, empathetic start, Job's visiting friends went pretty hard after a reason why. So in our scripture for today that Kendi read for us, our first one, we met Job's friends. They heard about all that had happened to him and arranged to come to Job to both sympathize and comfort. And what began as this ministry of presence devolved into a search for answers. Now there's like three rounds of speeches, 35 chapters. So I'm, I'm going to summarize them a bit for you, uh, for us. You're welcome. But they begin uh, by, they, they should be commended to start for sitting in silence, sitting Shiva with Job for seven days. But then Job breaks the silence. And in his pain and confusion, he curses the day of his birth. He began to speak his friends one by one with the reply from Job after each. They start out kind of spicy, and then they just kind of trail off, as many of our arguments, both in person and online, tend to do. So we first hear from Eliphaz. Eliphaz finds that the source of Job's trouble is obviously sin. His reasoning goes like this. Sin causes suffering. Job is suffering. Therefore, Job is a sinner. Job's protest that he is innocent only proves that Job is not only a sinner, but he's also a liar. And now the accusations are sort of flying here. Eliphaz says in chapter 5, verse 7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. He proceeds to compile this list of of sins, accusing Job of a variety of errors and, and seeks to bring him to his knees in confession and humiliation. Eliphaz is a a fundamentalist who uses other people's misfortune to verify the truth of his own black and white belief system. Job's suffering is evidence of his sin, plain and simple. Now, Bildad, the second friend, tells Job that whatever else takes place, he must remember that God is the most important part of existence and that Job must be careful not to blaspheme or deny him. Bildad argues that the reason we can't understand many things is that God is so great and we are so insignificant. How can we hope to understand such a vast purpose and intelligence operating in the complexities of the universe? Not a bad question. He says, even the, the moon is not bright and the stars are not clean in his sight. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Do you have any idea how busy God must be and how much he has to do? You're pretty insignificant in the great scheme of things. How can you expect to have answers to everything that is going on in the counsel of God? Bildad is an intellectual with this head full of, full of philosophical truths and ideas, but he has no ability to make any connection with the personal details of human life. He's all ideas and can talk about them endlessly, but perhaps he can't even remember his own wedding anniversary. In magnifying God, Bildad minimizes humanity. Bildad the intellectual has bigger things to contemplate than a poor man in despair and suffering. And he's had about seven days sitting in silence to think about this. Finally, Zophar, the third friend, turns out to be a moralist. He advises Job, set your heart aright, and your life will be brighter than noonday. This is in chapter 11. So far, is not only straight, but he's narrow. Job must do good deeds and his problem will be solved. So far, has the universe well-ordered in his mind and Job is this disorderly part of it. So far, must do his part to put, what is, uh, to put right what is wrong, like a meticulous housekeeper who straightens a crooked picture or removes a smudge. So far, becomes impatient with Job. He insults and accuses him. 
He's on God's side and wants to clean up the world. He never really hears Job's story and becomes sensitive to his plight. He's eager to jump in and sort things out into clearly clearly defined lists of, of good and bad. Keep the rules. It's that simple. Eugene Peterson sums up his friends like this. So much for Job's friends. Eliphaz with his fundamentalist altar call, Bildad the intellectual with his big ideas, and Zophar the moralist with his condescending self-righteousness. Miserable comforters indeed. Kate Bowler, who we're going to hear from later, puts it this way. When someone is drowning, the only thing worse than failing to throw them a life preserver is handing them a reason. So why isn't the answer? But there's a who that we need. In times of of suffering and trials, each of us need a few who's, if you will. First, we we need friends. I've titled this message, Thank You for Being a Friend. So points if you got the Golden Girls uh, reference. Uh, Betty White recently passed away. She was 99 years old. And and I saw a a tweet about, could you imagine being 99? And like collectively society is like, nope, not long enough. That was the type of friend people believe she was. Like the Golden Girls, we need friends, people to walk with us in every season of life, not necessarily to explain what's happening to us at any given time. All around us, perhaps it's you today, are suffering people, people afflicted with all sorts of pain, struggles, tragedies, diagnoses, losses, losses, physical pain. And more than a reason, they need a friend, someone to to meet practical needs, maybe even to provide some momentary relief from the fear and worry and places our wandering minds can take us. Kate Bowler, who I mentioned uh, in her book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. She tells of her journey from researching uh, and writing about the prosperity gospel kind of movement. It's this idea that when things are going well, God is blessing you, and the opposite, when things aren't going well. She tells of from going to that to being diagnosed with stage four colon cancer and realizing that in some ways she had been subscribing to that very theology, which, by the way, Job and his friends essentially believed that God was pulling the strings, so either Job sinned or God is not just, both of which are Satan's theology and not God's. What does it mean to die, Buller wondered, in a society that insists that everything happens for a reason? Well, Kate is stripped of that certainty, only discover that without it, life is hard, but beautiful in a way that it never had been before. All around us are people in need of friends to sit with them as they enter the mystery of their pain, as Bowler did, and look around for God. So by way of application, she offers a few uh, appendix, appendices, if you will, at the end of her book. And the first is this. These are things, she says, absolutely never say this to people experiencing terrible times, a short list. So I offer these as advice. I cringe to think how many times I've said things like this. The first, well, at least, she says, whoa, hold up there. Were you about to make a comparison? At least it's not, what, stage five cancer? Don't minimize. Second, in my long life, I've learned that, geez, do you want a medal? I get it. You've lived forever. Well, some people are worried that they won't or that things are so hard that they won't want to. So ease up on the life lessons. Or she writes extensively about this. 
someone saying, God needed an angel. She says, this one takes the cake because A, it makes God look sadistic and needy, and B, angels are, according to Christian tradition, created from scratch. Not dead people looking for a cameo in Ghost. You see how confusing it is when we just pretend that the deceased returned to help you find your car keys or make pottery? (laughs) And this, everything happens for a reason. The only thing worse than saying that is pretending that you know the reason. This is my favorite. I've done some research and... She says, I thought I should listen to my oncologist and my nutritionist and my team of specialists, but it turns out that I should be listening to you. Yes, please, tell me more about the medical secrets that only one flaxseed provider in Orlando knows. <laughs> Wait, let me get a pen. So those, those are the lists of don'ts. Let's clearly understand that. She says in the second part, give this a go. See how this works, the short list. I'd love to bring you a meal this week. Can I email you about it? Helpful. You are a beautiful person, she says. Unless you are of the opposite gender and used to speaking in a creepy windowless van kind of voice, comments like these go a long way. I'm so grateful to hear about how you're doing and just know that I'm on your team. Love it. You mean I don't have to give you an update? Can I give you a hug? Or... Oh, my friend, that sounds so hard. You remember from the video, the guy got the the hand on the hand, like he was in business when he started to, to empathize. And then lastly, she just encourages silence. The truth is that no one knows what to say. It's awkward. Pain is awkward. Tragedy is awkward. People's weird suffering bodies are awkward. But take the advice of one man who wrote to me with his policy, show up and shut up. And then her final public service announcement to suffering people. Just remember that if cancer or divorce or tragedies of all kinds don't kill you, people's good intentions will. Take the phrase, but they mean well, as your cue to run screaming from the room or demand presence. You deserve a break. So be a friend, not a guru. We don't have to have the answers. Suffering people need the comfort of friends, but they also need the comforter. There's something people need that we can't offer, that only God offers. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Paul calls God the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. An important lesson from the book of Job is that God allowed Job's suffering, but God didn't cause it. God is always on the side of healing, not disease. God is always on the side of life, not death. Jesus said the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come to give abundant life. God's not the crap dealer. He's the life giver. He's on the side of the giving, not the taking. Let's not miss that. Scan the Gospels. Jesus never once meets anyone in their pain and suggests that God is doing that to them. Rather, we're often casualties of war. There's evil in the world, these free agents, like Satan showing up and stirring things up. There's evil in the world. We don't know what's happening on the upper stage, but we do know that Jesus came to the lower stage to be with us in our pain. And is our great hope that he has and he will end suffering and death forever. Ken Tanner, a pastor and theologian that I appreciate, puts it this way. No one has the answer to suffering, 
but our God suffers with us in order to end suffering. Job then is not meant to give a specific reason for suffering. Instead, Job points us to the person who suffered perfectly on our behalf. Even in the midst of our suffering, we can dare to believe that God is as beautiful as he is revealed to be in Jesus. So how do we get there? We can start by remaining honest. In the second scripture for today that Kendi read for us, uh, we see Jesus on his knees in sorrow and anguish, asking God for a different way forward. Is it possible? If it is possible, take this cup from me. Jesus knew what was happening on the upper stage, and still in honesty, he pled. He knew where the events of Holy Week were headed, that he would suffer to end all suffering. And yet he still remained honest with God, pleading, are we sure there isn't another way? And I imagine he, he would say, are we, are we sure? Like I was there, I know, but are, are we sure there isn't another way? And we can see this same honesty throughout the book of Job. We, we looked at, we began this series with the end in mind in week one, and we looked at Job 42.6, where Job repents of what he says. He takes back his ignorant statements and then rebukes, and then God rebukes Job's friends for their bad advice and wrong beliefs about God. Listen to this, particularly the end. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. That's interesting. Now the word right in verse seven is this Hebrew word kun, meaning to align with or to be straight. In this context, it can't possibly mean that Job spoke accurately of God because he just repented of, spoke, of speaking inaccurately. And, and beside that, it, it conflicts with the whole testimony of Jesus. But what it rather means in this context is, you spoke to me straight from your gut. You aligned with what was true about you. What God is saying here is that Job stayed honest. Unlike Job's friends who projected their fears onto Job's situation and fell back on their simplified belief systems, Job rather kept the lines of communication open. He let God have it at times. And even when he was wrong, like what he just repented of in 42.6, where he said, I spoke of things I did not understand, uh, things too wonderful for me to know. Even in that, he stayed honest. As wrong and unorthodox and backwards as some of Job's prayers were, he spoke from his gut, and God loves that. God loves honesty over accuracy. He wants an honest relationship with honest people who choose to be in a relationship with him. He wants free lovers. And here at the end of Job, we see God's theology winning out. Job vindicates God's character against Satan's charge. Job was a free lover. Pastor Tim Keller says that God only allowed Satan to accomplish the very opposite of what he wanted to accomplish. He gave him uh, enough rope to hang himself. But hear me, God's not, God's not causing your suffering to achieve some object lesson. Rather, God transfigures our pain that's dealt to us by a broken, uh, brokenness and evil in the world, as only God can, into a good that gives or deepens life. We sometimes sing the song that says, and the story isn't over if the story isn't good. Failure's never final when the father's in the room. Are you suffering? Are you afflicted? Are you in the midst of a story that doesn't feel good? The story's not over. Hold on to that great hope, even in the midst of your darkest night. It's not over. 
But in the middle of it, be honest with God. And Voskamp says it this way. Lament is a cry of belief in a good God, a God who has his ear to our hearts, a God who transfigures the ugly into beauty. So we get there inside the mystery of our pain, looking around for God by being honest with God, and then by holding on to hope in the midst of it. We're going to share in uh, communion together in a few minutes, remembering that indeed the cup did not pass from Jesus. His blood was shed on our behalf. But before we do that, at the risk of being the singing preacher, uh, I want to share a song with you that I wrote almost 20 years ago, uh, in part informed by my first study of the book of Job in college in Dr. Canning's class. It's called Hold On to Jesus, and it was my commitment then and now to hold on to hope in the midst of whatever life would bring. It's been tested a bit, and I imagine it's been tested for you, and it likely will be more throughout my life. But I believe there's one thing we can be sure of, and I'm clinging to it. Perhaps you are too. world I will have trouble in this world I will have pain in this world yes, I will be defeated in this world I will bear shame but I know that he is able Able to take it all away And I shout that He's my Savior Hallelujahs to the King So I will hold on to Jesus I will never let Him go Send me all around I will stand on solid ground I will hold on to Jesus And when all my plans have failed And all my treasures lost I will sing that He has conquered I will glory in the cross I will hold on to Jesus I will never let him go Though the sand be all around I will stand on solid ground I will hold on to Jesus Cause I He is all I need In life's uncertainty 
He is all you need in life's uncertainty. He is everything. So I will hold on to Jesus. I will never let him go. Though the sand be all around, I will stand on solid ground. I will hold on to Jesus. Let's pray together. After applause. Thanks. God, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, and we don't want it to seem simplistic, and yet it is simple, God. We want to hold on, and we know that you are holding on to us. That is our great hope. And so, uh, God, as we move into a time of communion, uh, remembering your sacrifice, we simply say thank you. Jesus, our eyes are on you in the midst of whatever it is we're facing. Uh, We love you. In your name, amen.